Please note this podcast contains details surrounding a murder, which some people may find disturbing. Previously on The Storyteller, Murder Most Foul, the killer's former best friend spoke publicly for the first time, revealing she'd enjoyed a cup of tea with Pamela Gurley just hours after she'd murdered her 22-year-old neighbour in the West End of Aberdeen. She came on the Saturday, this was after she'd killed Melanie, and acted, in my eyes, like there was nothing wrong. And her shock of being dragged into the investigation and then discovering the truth about her kind-hearted friend. I got a rude awakening from about 11 coppers coming through my door. Pretty much ripped my house apart. I didn't know until the end of the interview, but Pam was in the room next door. And at the end of the interview, I heard her screaming and they said, she's just been charged with murder. I'm Isla Traquere, a storyteller. I was the young journalist who covered this murder, my first of many. And now I'm going to share with you this story, which is still as shocking today as the day it happened. I'm hunting down the people at the heart of this case, most importantly, the killer, to see if I can finally get some answers and discover the truth behind this murder most foul. This is The Storyteller, Murder Most Foul, written, produced and edited by me, Isla Traquere. October 19th, 1999. Shane Campbell is a young, ambitious defence agent working in the courts of Aberdeen. His days are filled defending those accused of thefts, burglaries, assaults and other crimes related to the chaotic life of those who've fallen into the clutches of drug addiction, which was rife at the turn of the century. But one day he receives a call which changes his life and brings to him the biggest case of his career so far. The call should have been picked up by a duty agent at another firm, but there was no answer. He was the backup. So I was a crime reporter in Aberdeen for many years and I covered countless cases that Shane Campbell was defending and accused. And although the court staff and lawyers and journalists would politely acknowledge each other, we're not allowed to discuss ongoing cases with them. So this is the first time that I'm going to hear about the background of a case from a lawyer. So I'm going to go meet Shane now. I've got a lot of questions and I'm intrigued to learn what goes on behind the scenes. And in particular, the day he got that phone call asking him to represent Pamela Gurley. My name is Shane Campbell. Uh, I'm a qualified uh, solicitor specialising in criminal uh, litigation and I have been involved in that line of work for uh, approximately 25 years. On the Tuesday, which would have been about 10 days after uh, the murder itself, the murder had taken place on a Saturday morning, and um, unfortunately, Melanie's body, of course, hadn't been discovered until the Monday night. The police contacted my office, the call came through to me. They advised that they'd not been able to get hold of the uh, duty agent for that week, so they had contacted me uh, as the next down the line, as it were, and they advised me at that stage that they had a young lady in custody and they were about to charge her with murder, 
and they wanted a solicitor to be present uh, for that purpose. Uh, I um, inquired as to whether or not this was the Great Western Road murder, um, which, as you can imagine, had achieved some notoriety at that stage, uh, and um, there had been a lot of coverage in the press and the media. The police officer that I spoke to confirmed that it was. Uh, my recollection was that that was shortly after lunchtime on that Tuesday, and probably within about 10 or 15 minutes, I'd made my way down to Queen Street Police Headquarters. Former Detective Sergeant Peter Riley had just heard Pamela Gurley's confession and met the young solicitor in the custody suite. The solicitor, Shane Campbell, comes down and you have to tell him, we have her in custody, she's just confessed to the crime in great detail yeah. with specialist knowledge of the crime. And also forensic teams at her property right now, we've just found bloodstained clothes and the weapon, etc. Yeah. Um, so that's, that's quite a package they're handing to him. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And Shane Campbell's coming in cold. Um, he's told the circumstances from us. Um, just the briefest of circumstances, the background. We have um, been investigating the murder of Melanie Sturton. We have Pamela Gourley now in custody in connection with that murder. She's made an admission to us on tape, on audio and videotape, um, regarding circumstances. My colleagues have searched the property at 188 Great Western Road and found incriminating evidence against Pamela Gourley. Pamela's also given us, during her admission, some specialist knowledge that um, all led us to the point where we were going to charge Pamela Gourley with the murder of Melanie Starton. And then Shane Campbell meets the young chef for the first time. The cells are as they are today, um, steel door, uh, there is a hatch um, so that uh, the police or the custody officers uh, can uh, keep an eye effectively uh, on any person who's within the cell. When the door opens, um, immediately in front of you, at the back of the cell is effectively the bed. There will be a mattress, um, a blanket, uh, and very little else. Uh, there's a toilet in the corner. Uh, and apart from that, you have four walls and basically nothing else. So Pamela would have been seated, uh, I think, on the, the bedding, on the mattress, facing me as I came into the cell. She was in her own clothes. What they were, I can't recall. I think, oh, from recollection, it was possibly a pair of black jeans. She had fairly striking, lengthy, um, ginger brownish hair, shoulder length. Um, I remember that, and she was quite teary, um, uh, quite distressed, as you, you can imagine, at that stage. Now, the interesting thing is that at that time, in 1999, the law was such that uh, we, as criminal defence agents uh, and the clients, did not have the right to consult with one another prior to being interviewed by the police. She had already been interviewed and she, that had been a, a fairly lengthy process. She had made a fairly detailed yeah. admission and gave uh, the police a fairly um, precise account of what had taken place. My involvement was then subsequent to that um, when the police, uh, having interviewed her, were then going to formally charge her with the crime. Uh, and so that was the first occasion on which I was able to speak with her. It was not the time to discuss the specifics of the case or indeed what her position 
uh, may or may not have been in relation to the allegation. It was really um, an opportunity to try and a uh, provide some calm for her uh, and advise her as to what was going to happen um, for the rest of the day and then indeed the following day in court and what procedures uh, would be um, in relation to that. So you in a way would have had to kind of comfort her and as such in a way of you know this is who I am and this is what I'm going to do. Yeah so I would have um, come in spoken to her um, identified who I was uh, and then possibly um, said to her something along the lines of I believe you've been uh, already interviewed um, the situation now is that you're going to be formally charged so we'll be taken through to one of the interview rooms in the presence of uh, a couple of the police officers and they will formally charge you with the murder of Melanie. Um, now you will be asked, uh, having been charged, whether or not you wish to make any comment and my advice to you would probably be um, to make no comment uh, at this stage. Um, because of the way in which the interviews were conducted without the benefit of legal advice, that was pretty much uh, redundant uh, advice at that stage um, because that would have been pretty much shutting the, the barn door after the horse had bolted. Pamela Gurley appeared in private in court the next day, but at that stage an accused is not required to offer a plea and bail wasn't an option for a murder charge in 1999, so she was taken to the small female unit at Craigenshire's prison in Aberdeen. Initially, when someone has been charged with an offence of that magnitude, uh, you're somewhat reticent to go into the detail of uh, what may have happened and what the accused position may be. And the reason for that is that if they say anything of an incriminating nature to you, even as a defence agent, from an ethical point of view, I would have had no option but to, for example, if she had indicated to me, look, I have committed this murder, but I want you and the defence team on my behalf to take this case to trial and I will tell you from my point of view what my defence is. Ethically, that would have been an absolute no-no for me to continue acting at that stage because having indicated to me that she was guilty, I would not be permitted then to continue acting if she then wanted to take the case to trial and maintain a not guilty stance. If she indicates to me that she wishes to plead guilty uh, and that view remains the case, then I'm perfectly happy to act on her behalf uh, all the way up to the point where the case eventually calls in court and a guilty plea is tendered. So at the early stages, it's, it's not so much about saying to her, right, tell me what happened, have you a defence, um, this is really interesting so you literally to, hit pause on it to an extent yes yes interesting and at that stage I would have been aware in general terms that she had um, made a confession of sorts to the police the police would probably have told me that um, at that point of initial contact uh, where I met her for the first time and I would have spoken briefly with the police officers at that stage so <laughs> From my point of view at that early stage, I probably have it in my mind that ultimately this looks as if it is going to be a guilty plea. 
Despite this assumption, Pamela never actually admitted the crime to her solicitor. In fact, she barely reacted at all during his many visits to discuss the mountain of evidence gathered against her. Well, invariably, um, she was subdued, emotionless, if you like. Um, I would go through the evidence with her. We would go through the transcript of the taped interview. Uh, we would go through the various other statements of Crown witnesses. Um, we would talk about uh, the recovery of the bloodstained clothing, the knife, etc., etc. And I would have said to her, you know, do you have anything to say in relation to this or anything to tell me? And she would, as I recall, probably have just sort of nodded blankly back to me without either saying anything, um, certainly not providing any detailed uh, response to what was being put to her. Um, so it was, you know, almost as if I was sitting opposite her, presenting the evidence to her, and there was a sort of blank reaction, really, um, a shrug of the shoulders, maybe, um, but nothing more than that. So it's difficult for you to read your, you know, is that yeah. someone accepting it yeah. or is that someone yeah. trying to stay silent that has, is withholding information? Yeah, I mean my, my gut feeling at that point was that um, this was somebody who effectively was accepting her fate yeah. um, and you would certainly have expected, as I think most people would, um, that if you were sitting on remand facing the most serious crime in Scotland and the evidential material was being put to you, if you were innocent of that and you had a clear defence, then that is something that you would be shouting from the rooftops, you would think. Mm -hmm. And therefore, because that was not the way in which she reacted, uh, and although her reaction to some extent one could describe as strange, um, because it was almost emotionless, um, and you might have expected that if this was someone who had accepted her fate and accepted her guilt, perhaps would have shown a little bit more emotion when the details were mm -hmm. being put to her. Uh, but that wasn't the case. Um, it was, as I say, almost just a, a sort of cold shrug of the shoulders and so be it. I'm imagining as well that you would have had to show her the photographs. Yes. From from the scene, including the photographs of Melanie's body, which, yes. as we yes. know, are pretty graphic yeah. and hard to, hard to look at. Yeah. And she didn't react to those. No. My general recollection of our interactions was that it was a young lady who, for the most part, was fairly emotionless, fairly blank, and almost accepting of her fate, but without showing the type of emotion that you, I, or indeed any member of the, the public would, would have expected from someone if they had carried out that type of brutal murder. While Pamela was failing to communicate with her solicitor, 
She was talking to those closest to her. She phoned her mother from prison and confessed, Mum, it was me, I did it. The full conversation we will hear more about in another episode. But she also phoned her friend Claire Forbes, who was still in shock at the arrest and herself being questioned by detectives after a dawn raid. Phone rings and obviously it did the, this is a phone call from Craig Inch's prison, blah, 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 do you accept it? So I accepted the call and like, I think at the time it was probably about because I was younger, used a lot more slang words then. I had just said to her, what's the sketch, which was... We used what's to going say, on? Yeah, it was just a slang term for how you doing or what, what's yeah. happening or... And then that's when she'd said, I'm getting charged with it. And I was like, but what? What, you did it? And she was like, yeah, and I don't know why. Mm-hmm. I just kind of... I think she'd said to me, I just woke up covered in blood. Mm-hmm. But that wasn't heard on the tape or something. I, I don't know, but... Yeah, the converse, she begged me not to tell anybody and I said, I think my, I think I said, I can't promise you that. Mm-hmm. And I think I said to her, please don't phone me again and I put the phone down on her. Mm-hmm. And that would have been the last time I spoke to Pamela, mm-hmm. ever. You then called the police up. Yeah, and I think their attitude towards me changed dramatically after that as well. Mm-hmm. Um, definitely. What did you say to them? It was you. You had. The... I had a card, and it was like one of the investigating officers. I can't mind his name. I just remember he had a baldy head. Um, and I'd phoned, and I said I need to speak to somebody about the case. I'm Elnester and Pamela Gourley. So obviously, right away, got through to him, and I said she's just phoned me and confessed. So uh, I think you probably want to come and speak to me, sort of thing. And then they came round the very next day. I think it was, and took a statement. Mm-hmm. And then were like, but they were like, oh well, obviously. Mm-hmm quite thankful that I mm-hmm. contacted them. This is evidence which um, comes out during her stay because these are phone calls that are made from the prison. And uh, of course, these calls are routinely monitored. This is information then which, uh, of course, the, the, the prison authorities will provide to the police, the police to the Crown, and then in turn, that's disclosed to ourselves. Uh, and again, I will have gone up to, to Pamela and gone through that with her and said, look, here is the transcript of a telephone call that you've made to your mother. Uh, but again, that would have you know, followed the same pattern where she probably would have stared blankly at me and, or shrugged her shoulders and said, yep. Um, and again, that, you know, as time goes on and uh, the more evidential material of an incriminating nature that becomes available and her lack of response to that, um, further crystallises the the view in my mind that this ultimately is is going to be a guilty plea. And nothing changes. A Queen's Counsel is appointed to represent Pamela in court and is booked for one day on the assumption they'll be tendering a plea of guilty. But just over a week before the court date, Mr Campbell is summoned to the prison. At no time during these various consultations did she indicate... I did not do this, and this is what happened, and this is the line of defence that I wish to pursue. So again, as the weeks and the months progressed, I was still of the view that this had all the hallmarks of a case that would resolve by way of a guilty plea on the first day of the sitting. When the indictment was served, uh, and I can't remember the exact date, but it was only about a week to ten days before the matter was due to call in court, I got a call to go to the prison to speak to Pamela 
and it was at that stage for the first time that she disclosed to me uh, that her position was that she had not killed Melanie, that it had in fact been her boyfriend, Chris Taylor. When it was going to be called. Initially, my understanding was she's going to be pleading guilty. Experience tells you that, you know, until, until the court case is actually open and the person pleads guilty, you don't take anything for granted. Um, but clearly, she'd, she'd indicated, and her defence team had indicated to the Crown that they were going to be pleading guilty, so there was no, um, no expectation that all witnesses would need to give evidence. That changed, um, and then at the 11th hour, we learned because obviously as a as a um, alibi, our special defence, um, she'd named Chris Taylor as having committed the murder. This admission or confession that she had been taking the blame, if you like, uh, on behalf of her her boyfriend, or was her position, that, that happened literally days after she got the results of a CT scan. So was that, do you think, we obviously had a concern about her. One of the, the issues that you would naturally look towards um, when dealing with a, an horrific murder of this nature uh, would be to assess the underlying mental capacity or otherwise of the accused. Um, a murder of that ferocity um, would lead you to naturally, if not suspect, then at least raise the possibility that there may have been psychiatric issues. Um, so they would certainly have been explored. So that uh, would have been a, a psychologist or psychiatrist yeah, assessment? Yeah. Now, I can't remember the basis on which the CT scan was ordered. It may have been that there was a suggestion of some underlying condition, urological condition, that can be the only reason that a CT scan would have been ordered. A CT scan is obviously not going to pick up on any psychological or psychiatric uh, issue. Um, so whether, uh, whether it may have been that she had indicated that there were difficulties from a memory point of view or something of that nature, I can't recall the reason why the CT scan was ordered. But clearly it was. Um, I don't think the results uh, changed anything dramatically from what I can remember. Uh, and it was around about that time that I then got the call to go and speak to her and she then told me that this was in fact what had happened. Before telling her solicitor, she'd first confessed her alleged innocence to prison wardens. She said she'd made a pact with her boyfriend. She was scared of him and so she'd taken the blame. On the next episode of The Storyteller, Murder Most Foul, as the trial date looms, the legal team spring into action to prepare a defence of incrimination. And an unexpected witness emerges mid-trial, which could help their case. The Storyteller, Murder Most Foul, is written, produced and edited by me, Isla Traquair. Please subscribe on Spotify, iTunes or Acast. And there's more information about the case on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram.